Hi, this is Ed Carpenter, and you need more front wings. Welcome to another More Front Wing podcast. I'm Steph Wallcraft, joined by Paul Dalby and by More Front Wing contributor John Lingle as well, who's here to give us a wrap-up of his weekend on the ground from Texas Motor Speedway at the Firestone 600 this past weekend, where the Verizon IndyCar Series was visiting... um, I think it's only stop at a 1.5 mile oval, roughly 1.5 mile over this year. Uh, before we get to all that, though, we're going to rewind a little bit to Indianapolis where um, and have a chat with Townsend Bell, who uh, Paul had a chance to catch up with recently. And uh, Townsend's interview with Paul sort of brings us right up to speed with where uh, where we need to catch up on between Indianapolis and today. Paul, do you want to give us a quick rundown of everything you talked about Townsend with? Oh, wow. We, we covered a lot of ground with Townsend. We, we spoke about Indianapolis. Of course, we, we discussed his great run where he, he started 25th, ended 25th. And as he said, that <laughs> that's not exactly how his day went. Obviously, <laughs> he got all the way up to second at one point late in the race before, before his accident took him out. Uh, and of course, he was involved in the controversial incident between uh, Ed Carpenter and James Hinchcliffe. Uh, he had some other uh, another run-in earlier in the race that he talks about as well that didn't quite gather that attention. Uh, then coming out of, of Indianapolis, we, we looked f- at Texas last weekend and some of the issues coming out of there. We looked at uh, Will Power. What's he doing shooting himself in the foot week in and week out? Uh, how good is Ed Carpenter and, and what sort of target does he have on his back now? And then we kind of get into the subject of are these cars getting – too easy to drive, as some people have claimed it, with the long green flags that we've seen, and and how much more power do they need? So we, a whole host of range that we talk about with Townsend. Great. So let's give that a listen now, Townsend Bell. Welcome back to the More Front Wing podcast. We're here now joined with Townsend Bell, who we generally will find on the NBC Sports Network telecast of the uh, of the Verizon IndyCar series. But Townsend, you had uh, one one race this year at Indianapolis. Now your stats show that you started 25th, ended 25th. That 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 really doesn't tell the story of your day, does it? Doesn't sound like we passed any cars, does it? <laughs> tell us a little bit about how the day progressed from you. You got all the way up to second place before the uh, the, the late race incident, and uh, of course you had the incident with with Ed a little bit before that. But just tell us a little bit about how your day went and how it progressed from the from the green flag there. Well, we had a fantastic race car. Uh, everybody at KV did a great job to give me something that was uh, very capable in traffic. We knew we were strong from the final card day practice and the long Monday practice after qualifying weekend. We felt very confident in uh, in our ability to run uh, close in traffic, make moves, and uh, so we went into race day with with a lot of uh, optimism. Uh, despite a, you know, pretty lackluster qualifying performance. Um, so settled into a decent start. Um, you know, picked off a few cars on the first lap, worked our way up to, uh, I don't know, maybe 16th, 17th, something like that on the first stint. Then the second stint, of course, we're, you know, more green flag running than I've ever had at Indy. And, uh, uh, but things were going well. Second stint, about 50 laps in. To the race was passing Tony Kanon on the front stretch and uh, didn't get a whole lot of room between me and the pit wall. My left rear uh, clipped the, the inside pit wall going down the front straight and um, that knocked the 
rear toe out of alignment. So from that point on, we were compromised a bit from what was an incredibly strong race car at the start. Nonetheless, we made the adjustments in the cockpit and on pit lane to uh, deal with the issue and continue to soldier our way forward. And, uh, you know, we uh, we had the, the restart from uh, probably fourth position, I guess, when, when uh, Ed and Hinch got into the fence uh, and I got touched again on the left rear uh, just a little bit, but um, with Ed's car and... Uh, and, and then in the end, something like go on the rear. I'm, I'm imagining it's the left rear pulling. You never really know when you have a rear impact in the fence. Everything looks pretty beat up, so it's tough to know for sure. But that's that's what I would surmise is that the left toe link left let go after the two hits during the race. With regards to the the incident, the first incident with with Hinch and Ed, it sounded on the TV broadcast that you had no idea that that you guys had actually gone three wide into turn one. Is that correct? Yeah, I had no idea. I just assumed I was side-by-side with Ed. I left him plenty of of room to the inside, and um, I felt the the touch, and, you know, the yellow obviously came out. So I got on the radio and said, you know, what happened? I left him plenty of room, and, uh, you know, Poncho came back and said, oh, you know, Hinch ducked in at the last second. It was three wide. So that was the first time I had even known Based on what you've been able to see, and I guess if you can take off your driver's hat and remove yourself from the situation and kind of put your analyst hat back on, was it a move that Hinch was justified in making with 25, 26 laps left to go in the race at that point? I mean, he was justified. He was on the racetrack. It's the Indy 500. Um, you know, he was justified in the sense that you know, he was going for it, and uh, you never know. That might have been his last chance to make a move. Um, but you know, we went from a situation that probably had a uh, 90% probability of success, meaning Ed and I running into the corner side by side to, you know, maybe something that was more on a 30, 40% probability of success, which is a last second three wide situation. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the odds didn't work out for those two guys. Luckily I, you know, I made it through, but in the end, um, you know, maybe that little brush of the left rear was enough to, to knock me out. So, um, listen, I've been I've been on all sides of that equation. I've been the innocent victim, which is Ed on the inside. I've been the hard charger, uh, you know, uh, third car in, um, and and uh, you know everybody's racing, and the biggest prize in racing is on the line. And and I don't think you can fault anybody for for uh, uh, you know being aggressive in your pursuit of that, but uh, you know, uh, based on the nature of that race, um, that probably wasn't the only chance to make a move. It wasn't as if the leader was going to run away. So, um, listen, if we had a chance to do it all over again, I imagine Hinch would, would not want to make that move again. Um, and, uh, and, and I, and I might, you know, I might, uh, not want to run on the outside of it or maybe, maybe run even higher up off the line just in case somebody runs inside. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but um, it's a racing incident all across the board. You know, Townsend, one thing you just mentioned about maybe running a little bit higher, one thing we didn't hear about this year, and, and 
particularly interesting with the very, very long green flag stop or a green flag stint to start the race. We heard very little about marbling this year of the Firestone Firehawk tires, and it seemed like uh, they were very consistent this year. And, and there wasn't the problem that that we had had maybe three, four years ago about getting offline. What was your perspective of a driver? What was your comfort level of running maybe a groove or a half a groove higher than? than uh, the, the normal racing line and, and not losing it, as we've seen in, in previous years? It seems like the last three years since 2012, um, the, the marbling hasn't been as pronounced as in years past. Um, like 2012, if you recall, uh, Oriol Servia was the, you know, the brave, bold guy at the end of that race, um, running outside people with 10, 15 laps to go, and I followed suit right behind him. And, um, and, and, you know, whereas you go back to 2011, I guess, and you've got the JR situation at the end of that race. So, um, you know, I think Firestone definitely came with a more durable tire this year without a noticeable loss in grip. Um, but the last few years, they've done a great job to, to, uh, minimize the, uh, the marbling aspect. Now, also regarding that that first 150 lap stint, tell us what that does uh, to a driver from a physical standpoint. Was it difficult to go that long? Do you do you kind of start wishing, hey, maybe I can throw something out just to get a little bit of a, a rest here, or or do you are you in that groove where you don't even notice how long you've gone? Uh, you notice it. I mean, it's it's it felt very abnormal. It was my eighth Indy 500. So it felt very strange to be running that long continuously, but, um, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, for a while there, it looked like there was every reason to think it would just go green all the way to the finish, but, um, you know, cautions breed cautions. So, uh, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on from Indianapolis. Let's look at the most recent event down at Texas. Uh, the, 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 the Firestone 600 K down there, what was your general takeaway from the event? It was very different than, than what we've seen in, in years past, uh, just the way the race played out. What, what did you take away from the event? Uh, again, I think it was pretty similar to the last two years at Texas. Um, you know, guys are driving all night long, and there's no pack racing. Nobody's got their foot matted, you know, for 50, 60 laps on end. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really enjoy the, the, the nuances of, of watching and studying the techniques. Um, and, uh, and again, it, it forces, it forces talent to rise to the top. Um, I guess my takeaway was that, you know, uh, Will, uh, on his own in the lead, especially, uh, past about, about lap 30 from lap maybe 24. Let's say 25 to lap 40 of his stint, his pace was incredible, leading oftentimes three, four, five miles an hour quicker uh, than guys uh, in you know second, third, fourth on the same tire mileage. Um, but Ed Carpenter, uh, you know, demonstrated once again why uh, you know he's probably the most complete oval guy out there um, in his ability to you know manage his car, stay in the hunt. Um, and, and in the end, he, he just seemed to be the strongest through traffic, uh, overall, especially when he got into the lead. So, you know, I, I just, I think it's remarkable what he's achieved, um, you know, in his career to, you know, come from, uh, a, 
an initial background where, you know, he certainly wasn't the strongest guy when he first started in IndyCar and nobody was really talking about him to now he's, he's the yardstick. I mean, everybody's, everybody's measured, uh, uh, relative to, to Ed's performance and, you know, Indy, he was, he, he was, uh, super strong there just riding around and staying in the top five and, uh, you know, started on pole. So their fire was in his eyes there at Texas and, and he deserved that win. Uh, and, and just had a feeling before the weekend that, that he was going to be the top contender. Well, now Ed has won for for two different teams. Of course, he got his first win back in the 2011 with Sarah Fisher's team, and then he got his last two uh, there at California in 12 and here in Texas in 14 with his own team. So it's not something that you can say, oh, you know, he's just driving for a great team. What is it about Ed's driving that really suits him so well to these ovals? Um, supreme confidence. I mean, he's, you know, Ed's, Ed's extremely confident in his ability to operate the car at the limit, um, to deal with the discomfort uh, and the anxiety and the kind of, you know, nail-biting element of driving an Indy car uh, in traffic on old tires, um, maybe when the when the balance isn't optimal. Um, he's just, he's super, super brave and uh, really, really in touch with what his car needs. And, um, I mean, just look at his record now, uh, you know, with Kentucky, Fontana, um, Texas now, you know, what he's achieved the last two years in qualifying at Indy, which, which, uh, calls on all of those, those, uh, strengths that I just mentioned. Uh, he just, he just is at the top of his game. He certainly is at the top of his game, and he oods confidence. On the flip side of that, though, the last two years at Texas, he's also been one of the more vocal opponents to what IndyCar has brought in terms of the downforce package there and what the ability to put on a good show for the race fans has uh, has ultimately what he has felt it needed to be. Maybe he turned that down a little now that he won this weekend, but do you feel that IndyCar maybe has, has swung the pendulum just a little bit too far in they certainly want to and need to get away from the pack racing, but do you think they've swung that pendulum just a little bit too far to take away what was some of the thrill and the excitement of the places like Texas or what Kentucky or Chicago used to be? No, I love the way the, the racing format now to me is ideal. Um, again, it puts a premium on driver talent and, um, and that's, you know, full credit to, to Ed, as we just discussed, he was, you know, he was the class of the field there. And, um, you know, I think more than anything, what, if you want to talk about the spectacle of IndyCar, um, you know, we have to remember that, that, um, you know, it's a spectacle of speed and, and, and a performance. And I'm talking just about the car itself and one car on its own. So, you know, I'd be more in favor of, uh, uh, the discussion about how much performance we should expect when we buy a ticket and go to the track and watch an Indy car from a power to weight and, and standpoint, as opposed to sort of an engineered uh, racing spectacle. Well, that brings up an interesting point because Texas, of course, was the location where CART had their failed attempt to race back in 2001, I, I believe it was. And, and those those cars at that time are kind of held up often as the what an indie car should be in terms of performance. If we got back to that level of performance or that power to weight ratio, 
is it feasible to even continue racing on these circuits? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to we, we'd have to take an educated um, analytical approach to uh, you know the, the the various thresholds as they're approached. Um, but that's incremental. It's iterative, if you will. It's not just it doesn't just come in one massive chunk. And um, uh, and I think that's ultimately that's what uh, that's what's so exciting about IndyCar racing. Um, from a from a spectacle, uh, when I was a kid, was you know the, the wow factor, mm-hmm. and the wow factor was of the car, and how how you know beastly the car was, um, how wicked fast the car was, and uh, I don't know that you can replace that with any other sort of visceral component, um, whether it's side by side pack racing, or uh, you know body kits or whatever, I think the, just the, the raw element of, of power to weight uh, and speed is, uh, that's, that, those are the ingredients that, that uh, you know, that work for us. Okay. I want to pick your brain on just a couple more topics before I let you go here, uh, kind of scattered around IndyCar and coming out of this weekend, I guess. First off, let's talk about willpower. Uh, we've seen willpower now with pit, pit penalties in four of the last five events. Claims he's not looking at the point standings and and you know driving just to win solely as he did late last year. What's your take on that? Is he starting to lose his focus a little bit mid race and repeating the same error over and over and over again? And will this cost him the championship at the end of the year? Well, he does have a propensity for uh, you know for for un unforced errors. Um, you know, Barber, uh, when he was leading and it was a little wet there and he ran off wide, um, you know, the Detroit, uh, Detroit penalty, the pit speed limit piece. Um, I found his reaction a little funny at, at Texas in that, you know, he, he sort of played the victim like, oh, I always get penalties. Well, a pit speed penalty is, you know, that's, there's nothing subjective about that. That's just a computer and you're either, you're either, too fast or you're not, you know, there's, there's really not a judgment call for the officials. So, and, and he wasn't even um, close. <laughs> it wasn't even close. It was, uh, I think it was 71 miles an hour at, uh, you know, the first timing line or something, mm-hmm. um, was the data that I saw. So, um, you know, but listen, uh, you know, Will's arguably the, the, the fastest, most, uh, uh, capable guy out there, um, you know, anywhere, uh, at any time, just on on raw ability and pure speed, uh, so it makes up for a lot. And we saw that at Texas, and we saw that at Detroit. Uh, despite a penalty, um, you know, he just came raging back through the field, and uh, he finished second on both occasions. So, you know, to me, and uh, certainly this is, you know, echoed by uh, Team Penske's faith in his abilities. Uh, you know, the, the, the speed and the ability to lay the lap down and just utterly dominate on so many occasions uh, far outweighs, you know, maybe a few of the rough spots. But at some point, you know, he'll he'll beat himself up enough and realize, you know, God, I didn't need to take that big of a chance, you know, entering pit lane. Um, but he said it before. He said, this year, I'm just I just want to go win races. And to win races, you've got to you're you're never conservative in this series. You got to put it on the line. You know, Hunter Ray will tell you that. Um, Conway will tell you that. Any of the guys that have won races, it's it's uh, there's no cakewalk. 
So um, he'll be fine, and I'm confident that uh, he'll factor heavily in the championship when we get to Fontana. Next topic, if I'm a Honda driver, do I have uh, a valid reason to be concerned going forward about the reliability of my power plant after what we saw at Texas? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I say, if I'm a Honda driver, if I'm driving for A.J. Foyt or, or Schmidt-Peterson or Andretti Autosport, do I have a reason to be concerned about the reliability of my power plant going forward after the failures we saw at Texas? Sure. I mean, it was 90, 95 ambient at, uh, at Texas, and they had three issues that I counted. Um, and, uh, you know, Houston is uh, two weeks away. Uh, less than, and I would expect it to be, you know, even hotter there. Um, but I know Honda had an issue at Indianapolis, and um, they certainly got that rectified in time to, to, to win another one. So um, they're an incredibly strong uh, company, racing company, uh, and you know they'll be uh, they'll do whatever it takes to get uh, uh, get the issue fixed. Final question on the uh, shotgunning here. Will Ryan Hunter Bray bounce back at Houston after a couple really tough weekends for that team in this post-Indy kind of funk, I guess you could say? Always does. Always does. I mean, I can. That's almost a guaranteed at this point that Hunter Ray, uh, you know, comes out with a another kick-ass performance. He did. He's done so much over the last two or three years. Uh, fought through adversity. Uh, you know, come out IndyCar champion, Indy 500 champion. So. Um, probably the safest bet there is and whether or not it happens at Houston, I don't know, but you can, you can rest assured he'll be, uh, he'll be winning more races and, and uh, fighting at the front many more times this season. How do you, how, are you willing to go on a limb and, and put a prediction on who we might see holding the, uh, the championship at the end of the season yet? Um, not if you don't ask me. <laughs> All right, let me ask you then. Now that we're now that we're approaching the halfway the halfway point of the 2014 series, who do you like at this point going forward for the championship? Will Power will win the championship. He will. All right. He'll win his first one. All right. Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll put Power down next to your name, and we'll say that's uh, that's who you picked. Townsend, are we going to see in the car anymore this year? Any chance of that? Uh, if you watch the uh, the Institutor series, uh, you'll see me uh, battling for my own championship there. We currently lead the, the GTD class by one point uh, over Porsche. And uh, so we're going to walk in Glen with our Ferrari in a couple weeks, and, and uh, we're, we're focused squarely on uh, trying to try to win that one. Very well. Very, does, does, uh, d- does the Tudor series have any more weekends with IndyCar this year? Um, not that I'm aware of, uh, although you know, I'd probably be the last person to, to know the schedule that thoroughly, but I I don't think so. Let's see, we've got uh, Watkins coming up, most Sport. Um, where else are we? Road America, uh, Austin, Road Atlanta. There's probably one in there that I'm forgetting about. So um, not that I'm aware of, but uh, I'm sure one of your listeners will, will correct us soon enough. Oh, they certainly will. That's for sure. <laughs> well, Townsend, thanks so again so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights. Thanks for the, the wonderful analysis from Indianapolis and the fourth and the uh, the look back at Texas. It's always great to, to pick your brain and, and to have such a, a great analytical driver with us to, to break down some of these events. 
great. Well, my pleasure, and thank you for covering IndyCar, and uh, thanks for watching on NBC. Absolutely. Thanks again. We'll catch up with you later. Always great to hear from Townsend, uh, and of course, as one would expect, very insightful views on uh, everything that's going on in the Verizon IndyCar series today. Just before we move on, when you guys did your um, post-indie um, podcast, which I had to miss because I was getting ready to get on the road to go to Detroit right after that really quick turnaround, did you touch on any personal stories from, from the Indianapolis 500 weekend? You know, we really didn't get into too much. We had so much ground to cover from just what was on the actually happened on the track. I think John and I probably could have spent two or three more hours <laughs> discussing personal stories. So we didn't really touch too much on that a few weeks ago. Well, let's let's just have a little bit of fun before we move on. We have a ton of stuff even to cover tonight. And we, we were talking just before we started recording about the fact that we never did even catch up on the, the Detroit weekend at all. And so maybe in this three-week break before we end up down at Houston, we can spend a week sort of rewinding a little bit to that. But let's have a little bit of fun because I have one particular story that I want to share about my uh, a very personal story about my weekend. So why don't we all take a turn and, and talk about the things that that stood out to us? I have a feeling I know what John's story might be about. So let's start with you, John. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, I had a really good weekend. I was able to bring my wife up. It was her first Indianapolis 500. And then, uh, obviously, as part of the uh, press run-up for my book, Hard Luck Lloyd, uh, Racemaker had a reception, uh, I believe it was Friday night, at the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. Uh, so that was pretty nice. We were also uh, helping to launch uh, the Jim McGee uh, biography that uh, he and Gordon Kirby had wrote. Uh, got to meet a lot of people, y'all included, that night, and uh, have a good time there. And then uh, come up the next day, uh, on Saturday uh, for the uh, memorabilia show, which I, I was not very familiar with, but uh, I'm getting there and uh, swap a lot of stories with folks that came by, uh, purchasing the book, and, and got to sign some books, take some pictures, and uh, it was just a really enjoyable time. Uh, got to meet quite a few folks from Twitter uh, that I had not met in person before, so uh, it was a jam-packed weekend for uh, for me and. Uh, one interesting note was also, uh, as some people know on here, was that uh, Dave Laycock was so happy with the with the book and how it had turned out. And, of course, for those that don't know, Dave was Lloyd's chief mechanic for all of the years that uh, uh, Lloyd uh, led the Indianapolis 500. Dave was his uh, mechanic for those. And uh, he actually invited us to uh, stay with him and his wife uh, just, out, uh, just outside of Indianapolis. So we actually spent the weekend with them. And I got to share some really cool stories with him, see some of the equipment that he'd actually used building the old mongoose chassis. And uh, so just just a really enjoyable time. Amazing. Paul? Uh, you, you know, this uh, this month, as, as great as Indianapolis always is, um, you know, I, I don't know that I had any particular moment outside of the track that, that stood out this month. But the one thing I will never forget was going – what was – being in the grandstands the last five laps of that race, five, six laps after the after the red flag was over and and they went back racing. And just the the feeling of watching the cars lap after lap. And, and John and I discussed this a couple of weeks ago, how if you look at the, 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 the stats, how they played out, you would think that absolutely nothing happened at the end of that race with <laughs> on, really only one or two passes in the top seven positions over the last six laps. But that feeling of, of, uh, of not knowing what's going to happen. We'd run 199 laps, and we still didn't know who was going to win this race. And I, I remember 
I'll, I'll never forget my legs shaking as they came around that last lap, that just excitement, that tension that had built up all afternoon. And it was coming down to the last seconds of the race and, and wondering, is Elio really going to make history here? Is Ryan Hunter Ray going to put his face on the board Warner? Is something going to happen to those two? Are they going to take each other out? And Marco breaks a 45-year family streak of, of not being able to get to victory lane. And that excitement as it had built all through the day and as it was being un, unleashed in those last few moments of the race, that's what I will always remember about this race was just the excitement of those last those last call it 10 minutes of the race and and the just the the buzz going through the crowd and and i'll never forget that feeling that's the magic of indianapolis isn't it were you the one that came out with the statistic that elio was two point something seconds for being a five-time winner of the yes yeah if you look at of course he won his first two races in 01 and 02 and his third race, which he claims he let Jill have his ring for that one. <laughs> yeah, sure, because uh, that's I really something that's, that's e- common. Exactly. Uh-huh. I believe the margin of victory on that one was like 0.29 seconds. I, I'm pretty sure that's about where it was. And then this one was, was it six hundredths, I think? So he's yeah. less than three-tenths of a second away from being a five-time winner. And that, that's amazing to think about. And we'll, we'll, That's amazing. We'll, we'll, we'll overlook the fact that, you know, he's a half a second away from only being a two-time winner now, uh, <laughs> as, as some folks might claim. But, yeah, that is an incredible stat to think about. It really is. Um, so I'll try to be brief with mine because it's a, it's a very personal story, but um, I just it's one that'll stay with me. I was um, walking around in the in the grid, and the Indianapolis 500 grid is, is amazing. It's the one place every year where you can be sure that you will see absolutely everyone that there is to see and meet people that you would never have another chance to meet. Um, so I had been sort of walking, weaving my way through the cars, taking a few bad photographs as I tend to do, and um, was standing. I ended up in actually on the side of the pit lane where the crew's all set up um, watching the, 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 the victory circle podium area because it was getting to be time for Jim Neighbors to come up to sing. And I really wanted to be there to see him up there singing for the last time. And I kind of had my train on a shot that I wanted to take. I had, I had a, a good frame all set up of, of this picture that I wanted to take, but there was a woman standing in front of me and her hair kept sort of bobbing into my shot. And I thought, okay, well, I'm standing here, you know, she's not taking any pictures or anything. It doesn't make any difference if she's two feet to her left. So I sort of tap her on the shoulder and say, excuse me, ma'am, do you, and, and just, I've got a really good shot for some photos here. Would you mind stepping just a couple feet to the side? And she turned around and it was Lynn St. James. and i went oh my gosh i cannot believe i just told lynn st james to move over and i immediately said ma'am i am so sorry i have no right ever to tell you what to do especially not at indianapolis motor speedway and she was so nice about it she said oh no that's fine i'll move over it's all right and she did and you know i didn't introduce myself by name but i said you know obviously when i was a little girl she was the only one who was doing and you can make a comparison to Pippa Man now. She she was the one, the woman that was that was scrapping it up against all the guys at, at IMS, and and so she to me was sort of the the one that I saw as as a, a woman to to see as a role model and an example. And so just that that sort of strange out of nowhere moment of getting to to meet her was uh, was really something special in an odd sort of I just told Lynn St. James what to do kind of way. <laughs> 
Yes, yeah, so oh. I got to, I had the chance to meet Lynn St. James a number of months ago at the PRI conference. We actually had sat together at the luncheon uh, at, at at the table that day, and and Lynn was was such an incredible. Uh, she was just so friendly and outgoing, and and you never would have guessed that she was a driver, you know, in her time. She was just so incredibly pleasant, has done so much to advance the role of women in racing, and, and not just on the track, but in all aspects of racing, from the the crews to the owners to to every role that that uh, that women can take on in racing. And she's certainly one to be commended, and and uh, a, a a a person not to be overlooked in, in what she's contributed to the sport over the years. Are you meaning to imply that the fact that she is pleasant makes her not seem like she would she would have been a driver, Paul? Because that's what I took from your comment. No, 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 not, not by any means. I think there are people that you would run into in the, on the street and never guess they were race car drivers. Ed Carpenter, probably one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are just a number of people that don't necessarily look like race car drivers. Certainly not to say anything about their talent behind the wheel, but but Lynn is and she's so good at the business side of it that you would think she's been a business person all. Her her life and uh, so yeah it was meant to be a compliment so I hope, <laughs> I hope it wasn't taken another way no no absolutely not so as we mentioned you know there was this little race weekend in Detroit that actually had two races in it um, in between the Indianapolis 500 and, and Texas where where IndyCar was last weekend but we don't have time to touch on that today and, and keep this down to a reasonable time so um, being that we have a long gap between now and Houston I think what we might do is just rewind a little bit um, and, and take a look at that maybe next week or uh, or sometime in the near future just to, to make sure we don't miss it but for now we are just just fresh back from Texas, and we have John here who was on site for the entire weekend um, to tell us what things were like on the ground. And definitely, we're interested in getting that perspective because if you take our first impressions um, column and put it all together, it sure looks like John saw a different race than the rest of us did. So, <laughs> so John, why don't you catch us up on what it was like? I think uh, if you've got it queued up, you can probably just play my uh, deal from the podcast last year. Cause again, I seem to be one of the only people in the world that enjoyed the race. <laughs> uh, I, I like this kind of racing. I, I really do. Um, where there's tire management uh, and uh, equipment management fight struggling with the grip level. I like seeing the top drivers struggle. I think that's where the cream of the crop really comes up. Um, you know, it, it, it's not the the three wide or pack racing or or multiple changes for the lead or any of that stuff. But uh, just from just a pure racing standpoint, uh, I thought it was a good race. Uh, but I know I'm obviously in the minority there. Uh, one thing that we did do was to give the uh, drivers a primer for what uh, the last weekend in June in Houston is going to be like <laughs> by having it uh, extremely hot and muggy. Uh, the entire weekend so uh, cruising the garage you saw some team members that had to be out and that was about it i think everybody else was kind of hiding in the trailer uh as well they should have been um because it it was hot and sticky uh there in 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 fort worth area um but but yeah i mean i i I thought the racing had its had its exciting moments uh obviously i wish marco hadn't blown up because uh he he made the race extremely exciting uh, for the first three laps and uh, then went up in a in a blaze of glory uh, and from that point it kind of uh, devolved into a, 
a two-horse race. I'm looking at the box score here. I didn't even realize Juan Pablo had led 13 laps. Uh, that was actually news to me. I, I didn't remember him leading that many laps. I just remembered Will and Ed. Uh, but I know, like I said, I definitely uh, have a different opinion of the race than y'all both did. Well, there's a few points we can touch on there. One thing, thing that I want to ask you before we move on from the subject is apparently somebody told um, a newspaper in the Dallas area that there were 65,000 people there on Saturday. Do you say, see any way that that could be the truth, John? Well, Andretti's got like six trailers there, so they might have been hiding in there. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, other than that, uh, I don't think there was 65,000 people there. Uh, maybe they that was a uh, weekend. That may have been Eddie Gossage's rough count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems seems a bit optimistic. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, now, I will say it was double what the truck series had, so don't let NASCAR tell you any different. It was double or triple what the truck series had. There was nobody there for the truck race. Um but the crowd was not uh, not as big as it's been in the past. I'm, I'm sure weather hurt. Uh, also, they had the uh, George Strait's last concert ever uh, there at the Jerry Bowl in Arlington. So a few few different factors. But uh, yeah, I, I'm no mathematician, but I would have guessed 35 or 40. Uh, it sure didn't look like 65 to me. I guess it, the uh, the Stanley Cup final probably wouldn't have contributed to attendance numbers in Texas. Now that I think about it, it certainly would have contributed to the TV I'm numbers. Go, so. No. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so you you mentioned you you sort of contrasted the racing style that we saw on Saturday as opposed to what we used to see a few years ago. And Paul, you touched on this on Twitter, and actually in the first impressions column as well. That that whole pack racing, everybody foot to the floor, running around inches apart for laps and laps and laps on end, making making maybe a few millimeters at a time. Um, the thing is, I think that I think we've reached a point where the fan base is is pretty well accepted that the current t- style of racing is what's safer and what's better and what's going to be the future. I just think that the the whole tire management issue and, and the cars being difficult to drive really didn't translate to television at all. And I don't know whether that is a factor of the TV booth not communicating it well enough or, the I mean, Townsend and, and PT in the booth as drivers, you'd think would have picked up on that, but um, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe it wasn't obvious enough to them that the drivers were struggling in any way, or maybe this field is just so darn talented that they're not letting on that they're struggling. And and um, the the upshot of it was that it really didn't make it to the broadcast very much at all. It was mentioned in a cursory way, and I but it and it was mentioned at the beginning that it was something that was going to be an issue and something worth watching, but. A couple of people told me afterward that watching on Twitter to see people commenting on the the lap times going down was the biggest hint of how much the tires were going off that they got. Did you see a different perspective from Trackside, John? Uh, Well, of course, you know, I've got there at Trackside in the media center, you've got live time and scoring coming around every lap. So, you know, right next to the screen that I'm watching the race on from the media center, I'm seeing the last lap speed and, and, and some other data. Uh, that I really enjoy seeing. So it, it's real, it was real obvious to me uh, what's happening there. Obviously, uh, just due to the constraints of the TV screen and how they want to present stuff, you know, you, you don't get that type of, of data. They might they might make a cursory mention of it, and I'm not sure what they did on the TV uh, telecast. We 
we'd get parts of it in there, but not all of the audio, I don't think. But, uh, you know, it's, it is definitely something that, uh, you know, how, how do you describe it to, to make it interesting? And I think it's either people are either going to be interested in that type of racing or they're not. You know, if, if somebody's got the, the visions of three wide uh, IRL days in their head, then, then this type of racing is not going to appeal to them. Uh, it's definitely the safer alternative to uh, to the things that we had, uh, like the instance at, at Vegas. Uh, you know, and and some of that may be me. I, I was not a fan of the uh, the uh, IRL formula for the mo- for the most part. It, it took incredible skill on parts of the drivers, uh, but it was a different type of skill than I think that it does now. So it's it's just kind of a almost like apples and oranges to me. You know, which which type of of driver skill set do you like to see? I agree with you, and I remember the first time standing watching uh, a live race of that style for me was, um, oh gosh, would have been 2009, Chicagoland, and I remember watching them go around the corners for the first couple laps and thinking to myself, these guys are out of their freaking minds, how can they do this, lap after lap is so dangerous, and so I certainly, from the perspective of you know safety, prefer the, the current style, I just think that there's a real gap in terms of the ability of the commentators to communicate to the viewers at home what these drivers are going through. And it doesn't, I, I don't know how to close that gap because I've never, you know, I haven't, haven't raced these cars. I don't know how to describe, but it doesn't seem like very many other people are having much look at it either. Paul, do you have anything to add? Where do I start? Um, <laughs> Okay, I guess to address your point first, Steph, about the the tire degradation and how it comes through on TV and whatnot, I think PT and Townsend did as good a job as could be done about relaying that information and keeping the fans abreast of what was going on. I think ultimately the fans just don't find it that interesting, to be quite honest with you. It's it's just not as interesting as as the hope would be that it is. Maybe because everyone is pretty much on the same tire strategy. Everyone pits the same lap every within a couple laps. Everyone is running fairly close to the same speed. So, you know, you save your tires, you have two or three extra laps. They're not that different. So everyone is kind of slowing down at the same rate, uh, more or less, within a handful of miles an hour. If they really want to make tires an issue, maybe it's time to start looking at different tire compounds for the oval races as we have on the road and street courses. Why not examine that? Maybe at at Texas we have a a tire that's five miles an hour faster but degrades very quickly like these do. And then we have the quote-unquote black compound, if you will, that maybe is a couple miles an hour slower but a much steadier uh, performance and then then tire strategy really becomes an issue because you have drivers on different strategies on different compounds throughout the race and you can see how those perform differently and there's a true performance difference between the car that's in first and the car that's in second not that they're slowing down together but there's a delta between them can I stop for a sec? Sure. I suspect that the barrier to that is not wanting to convey the message that having a tire that's less than perfect is an ideal situation on an oval when you've got those speeds and that peril to deal with. Well, it's not that it's less than ideal. I mean, how much worse can they get than what they had at the end of the runs this weekend? 
I don't think they wanted to have what they had at the end of the runs this weekend. We know from speaking to Firestone mm-hmm. over and over and over again that they don't make anything less than the best tire that they can. I but think this it, has been... This has been the the situation at Texas the last three years now. I mean, this simply isn't a, because a, they haven't really. No, I I really I find it hard to believe that that they've done this on purpose. I don't know that they've done it on purpose, but nonetheless, it's still the same situation. This isn't like it, they surprised them this weekend. This has been the situation at Texas since the DW12 came into existence in 2012. So it's not a new situation right and they were and, trying and, to fix it though by take by allowing more downforce weren't they maybe i think maybe. so yeah they added 300 pounds of downforce they added the option of 300 pounds of downforce right. let's be clear on that because the teams that, that decided not to take it and hang it out a little more um had had to deal with they had better speed but then had to deal with more tire wear issues that was my understanding right but ultimately i just don't think yeah when the, i'd be interested when, to when, see Go ahead, John. I was going to say, I'd be interested to see how many teams strayed very far from that. Uh, I know on practice day, uh, when Justin Wilson, Joseph Newgarden, and a couple other guys came into the media center, they were all pretty pretty uh, confident that they were going to be running at or near the, the max downforce because uh, they were anticipating some longer runs and, and wanted to have that, that extra balance to be able to race. Uh, I'm sure somebody took a gamble, but uh, well, that was one thing that could have been helped on the uh, TV coverage. And I don't know how you would get teams to give up that information. Well, that's the thing. Uh, but, you know, to let us let us have some uh, type of an idea who's running what downforce levels. You'd never get them to give that up. And that's such a shame because I wonder if that's one of those situations that they could create, like the like the allowing the photos thing that they that they brought in for this year, where where teams were not allowed to cover the cars up anymore, so that so that fans could actually take photos because it was for the betterment of the experience for the fan. I wonder if that's something where they could they could sort of enforce a similar situation on teams, but I don't know if they'd get away with it. Anyway, it's it's an interesting point to think about. Did you have any more rant left, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I could see the only way you could <laughs> no, go the ahead. only way you could do something like that would be to maybe uh, you know withhold that information until half race distance or something, to where it's at a point where you know what's the team, what's another team going to do with that information other than know who they're chasing has more or less downforce. You know, but yeah, you'd never get them to give it up before the race when teams are still making those decisions. But uh, I could see something where after the race it got started, and uh, and it's you know as far as for the parts and pieces that are unchangeable uh, for the teams at that point to to release that info. For the most part, I think teams all know kind of what each other are running anyway, just from looking at each other's cars, and the fans just don't know anything about car setup, and so we don't we're not privy to that. I think the problems come maybe when when it becomes sort of set in stone and something that people can refer back to that, that, or something that's, that's more official than a guess where, where teams get a little bit more hesitant, but anyhow, it's not going to happen. So it's all pie in the sky dreaming. Now, Paul, did you have any more rant left? Uh, I guess I would just touch on what John talked about earlier about, I guess you touched on it too, about kind of going back to the old Texas um, you know, there was certainly a time in, you know, call it 99 through maybe 2002, 2003, where they basically lined up two by two by two by two. Um, and, and yeah, it was it was foot to the floor. I think by the end of the 
decade, probably by 2008, 2009, and maybe not as much at Texas, but certainly at Chicago and at, at Kentucky, you know, they weren't necessarily running 220 mile an hour pace laps out there. I mean, there was a lot of separation between the cars, but they were still exciting races. They were still on the edge of your seat. And, you know, ultimately, yeah, it was that racing that made me become an IRL fan back in the early part of the 2000s uh, at a time when I was still a diehard kart fan. And there's still a big part of me that misses that that racing, that that there was a time when the words, and I put this in the first impressions, there was a time when you put the word IndyCar and Texas together and it made the hair on the back of your neck stand up because you knew what kind of racing that was. Was it dangerous? Hell yeah, it was dangerous. It, it, it was a dangerous type of racing. Racing is dangerous. Um, you know, there, there are multiple generations of, of race fans who became race fans and who, who idolized drivers because they were gladiators and they were survivors. Do I want to see drivers injured? No, of course I don't. But there is that, there's that element of danger, of fear, of, of looking up to somebody who straps into the cockpit week in and week out and faces that fear head on and knows, yeah, I have to be on my very best and on that razor's edge. And if I cross that line, then there are consequences for that. I, I think there, there's a lot of people that, that long for that type of racing. That's the racing that Texas and IndyCar made their name on. Um, yeah, these these races now resemble more of kind of what you saw in kart uh, through the mid-90s, kind of before the hand device came along, and where you would have guys run away, and you would see a guy win a race by, by a half a lap or a full lap. Uh, and that's just the way it was. But... I think the racing fan has evolved from where we were years ago, whether that's or, or 20 years ago, and whether that's a consequence of racing no longer being the um, the innovative and the technology-driven and much more spec series now than what it was 20 years ago. I don't know if it's a cause or or a response to that, but ultimately, I don't think that this type of racing that we saw at Texas this week is that is going to bring fans in droves to to watch IndyCar, especially on the ovals. I don't think you're going to be able to sell IndyCar. Come watch our race where you can see the best drivers in the world handle their car because their tires are degrading. I, I just don't see that. It's not the wheel-to-wheel. In IndyCar, if you look at their promotions, what are they going to show? Are they going to show guys trying to slide around on loose tires? No, they're going to show wheel-to-wheel excitement because that's what draws fans. If there is a way to to really convey the excitement of what was going on, maybe that works. But I don't think that conveys. If it doesn't, and it's much easier to understand what's going on in a race when you're watching it on TV than it is in the stands. And if you if we didn't get that sense of what's really changing the tire degradation when we're watching on TV, I don't think the people in the stands are able to grasp that remotely. It, it's a much more abstract thing to see live. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the attendance you see at Texas now is half of what it was 10 years ago, if that. That race used to draw 100,000 fans in around the 2000-2001 the era. If there were 30 to 40 there this weekend, I'd be surprised. And I, I think it has a direct reflection of the type of racing that we're seeing now. It's just not what the fans necessarily want to see. Counterpoint. That's, that's my opinion. Counterpoint. 
heroes were made in the 1960s for guys strapping in for extreme danger, not for guys strapping into machines to all do the exact same speed inches apart with their, their pedals to the floor for the sake of danger. That's ridiculous. It's not even a fair comparison. And there is no appetite left in the fan base once once Vegas happened and everybody saw the risks of that type of racing, there's no appetite for it anymore. If you brought it back, just as many people would leave for not wanting to, to see it, for being sickened by it, as would come back. And so I think that this is, I started to touch on this in the first impressions column, and I think that that's why I start to wonder whether the only real answer is to not be going to these high bank 1.5 mile oval tracks anymore at all. I wonder if it's just that IndyCar needs to let the concept go and accept that bigger tracks with lower banking or smaller bull rings are the, are just better suited to these cars overall and where they're going to get a better racing product and to stop trying to force that formula to work because Nobody, none of the drivers want to go pack racing anymore. A whole bunch of the fans don't have an appetite for it anymore. They maybe once did, but I don't think that they still do. Even if you brought it back to those same people who were the 100,000 sitting in the stands back in 2001. And so maybe the answer is just that that it's time to, to let these exact style of tracks go. Anybody? I don't know. Um, I I don't think we're going to come to a consensus on this. I think there are people that that still long for that time. And like I said, when you if you look at the Chicago you can race, the time that, all you want, but it's not going to come back. There's no way. IndyCar's no, seen what that style of racing can do, and they're not gonna they're not going to allow it to happen anymore. So some kind of compromise needs to be reached. Either we need to figure out how to make this style of racing more exciting and more interesting or we need to let the concept go and just focus on the kind of racing that's that's interesting and appealing to fans on its own i don't necessarily i don't necessarily disagree that it's gone it's not coming back but you and i have both been around long enough that we have seen unfortunately we have seen drivers uh fatally injured more times than not in in races that didn't involve pack racing I mean, you can go. I, I've no, seen. No, no. There's, there's no doubt. Like, obviously, racing is a dangerous sport, and it can always happen. It's always a risk. But you're putting it significantly more into the playing field by having by by forcing pack racing. And and the drivers agree with that enough that they have they have pretty much insisted that the series do something about it. So it's a it's a moot point to discuss whether it's going to draw fans back to it because it's not going to happen plain and simple no it's not going to happen you're right so but some but i don't know that this form of racing we saw necessarily the other night needs to continue if we want to grow the fan base because right now it's not working no i agree with that too i think i think there's something missing in the formula i just i don't know if an indy car can be made when you go outside of the, the pack racing formula to make an exciting race on a 24 degree banked one and a half mile oval. I don't, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an expert, but based on the, the, the three years, is it now of experimenting they've done so far? They I think 2012 was the closest they came and that was pretty good, but it's still, the, the crowds are still dwindling. So I feel bad because John's just sitting there. John, did you want to jump in on this at all? Uh, you know, I I can see I can see both sides of it, and, and uh, 
I'm trying not to get in a driver rant myself here, but uh, you know, that's, that's what another interesting thing is, is that one of the guys who's done the best at this form of racing is, is Ed Carpenter with mm-hmm. his new, new formula. But even he, it was buried in the in the quote sheet. He wasn't happy with, with it before the race started. Now, after he won the race, obviously, he said that he thought the formula was great. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's been a recurring process that, that he has called and complained, if anybody remembers his IndyCar 36, uh, whenever he was at Iowa one year, one of the first years that they kind of changed up the formula, uh, you know, where he was screaming on the radio all night to anybody that would listen about what a terrible race it was while pretty much everybody was enjoying it. So, you know, there's just there, there's no consensus between us. There's no consensus between the fans, but there's also no consensus between the drivers. And so I think that's what makes it such a tough question. That uh, is an interesting you know, There's not point. really a uh, – you know, go ahead, Steph. I just, yeah, no, I just, it's a, it's a really good and a really interesting point. And I think a big part of it comes down to your basic philosophy of where you came from as a, as a racer and or racing fan, right? Like all the guys that came from the, the little dirt tracks and the, and the short ovals tend to prefer the, the, the closer pack style racing because that's what they grew up with. But by the time you get into the the scope of doing that same racing in indie cars you're not dealing with the same product anymore but that's i'm not going to have that argument with ed carpenter right he's much more of an expert on it than i am so whereas you're going to find that a lot of people from sort of the the european side of things and i would argue maybe the canadian side of things where we don't do as much oval racing up here don't see it that way so it's it's something that maybe never can yeah that's the funny thing to me though is uh yeah that that's the funny thing with me, though, is that you think about somebody like Ed Carpenter. If two of my three wins were with this formula, hell, I'd be asking for him to take the wings off. But uh, he's, you know, he still doesn't seem to like it either. So that, that's just the hard thing with me is that the, even the drivers that seem to do to do well at it can't all agree. Some love it and say it's the greatest thing ever. Uh, that it's perfect. Willpower actually used the words perfect. Uh, he says perfect. Don't touch it. It was great. And uh, and some guys don't like it. So it's, it's, it's just it's just a really tough question. Was it EJ Vizo that refused to get in the car when after they took the downforce out? Oh, he got sick last year at, or a couple oh, years sick. ago. Oh, sick! Yes, quote unquote. That's right. But that was at Fontana, wasn't it? Or was Correct. it? Uh-huh. Was it at Texas? I feel like there was somebody that that. Anyway, I guess. But it's funny how we've all how you what you just said, Steph, just brought this all back to 1994, doesn't it? Oh God, we have. <laughs> Do you understand what just happened there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the the riddle that can never be solved. Nope. Right. Mm-hmm. You you just brought you just brought eighteen years of 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 split right back to the fore. And oh, except that. I think that history has has been lived out recently enough that it's not likely to repeat itself, and we all sort of understand that we need to come to a consensus of a solution. But oh no, no, I, I totally agree. This That's, is another matter. Right, we don't want to go back there by any stretch of the imagination. But I think in that one sentence, I think you just you just circled the wagons there, and you almost hit right on the head of the dichotomy of what really was the genesis of the split well okay but look what if we're looking at this let's let's edge into the schedule discussion a little bit because um our friends at nbc sports network i believe it was actually tony dezino um released a story within the last couple of days about some of the schedule changes that are being discussed for indycar um 
we can talk about the Dubai and the Brazil stuff in a little bit. I really, I, I, I think you can tell from my tone of voice that I'm about as enthusiastic about those as everybody else. Um, but there's, we're also starting to hear things like Michigan and Phoenix and Nashville. And those are tracks that I can get behind and that I can get excited about because they don't fit this this high bank 1.5 mile oval configuration that we seem to have so much problem with. So if we have a, a, a good, robust oval schedule that's got Indy, Phoenix, uh, Iowa, Milwaukee, um, Michigan, Fontana, are the oval lovers still complaining? Do you remember the last time we were at Michigan? You know what? I don't. I come the last to, time we were at Michigan. It's not different from had, Fontana had, and layout, is it? No, uh, Michigan, last time we were there, we had pack racing, and Dario ended up flipping down the back straight into uh, turn three. But that was pack racing. It wouldn't be like that this time. They can pretty much just take the Fontana formula and stick it on Michigan, can't they? More or less, yeah. 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 So I don't think you're looking at a repeat there in terms of those kinds of issues. Whether you're going to run it in August, yeah. Michigan's not going to Michigan's not going to happen thing. next year, though. Roger Curtis has made it clear that Michigan won't happen in 15. He's looking at 16. Uh, it's not going to happen for 15. I don't think Brian Sperber out in Phoenix is going to be ready for them in 15 either. I think both of those are 16 at the earliest. I know when I spoke with Roger Curtis several months ago, he said he wanted to see a good year of growth from IndyCar before he gets them on the schedule. So that means he wanted to see all the way through 14, wanted to see some solid results and building momentum through 14, and then look during 15, look for negotiations to hopefully bring them back in 16. I think Brian Sperber out at Phoenix is probably in the same boat. He, he wants to continue to see some growth out there um, and, and see if, if, uh, if, if the models can work. And that, that's what you keep hearing is this financial models. But both of those are going to be driven by seeing growth in IndyCar through 14 and carry that momentum into 15 before we see them. Fine, but this is a hypothetical question. If you have an oval schedule that has Indianapolis, Michigan, Fontana, Phoenix, say Nashville, um, Iowa, Milwaukee, and you get rid of those one and a half milers that the formula is just not working on, do oval fans really have a leg to stand on in terms of complaining? There's still lots of really good, really, really diverse oval-style racing happening there. Is that a problem? I don't see how it is. I don't see how dropping the one track that is dropping in attendance, sort of dropping in TV numbers, and we can touch on that briefly, but and and where the racing is just not working... Other than the fact that you're that you're getting Eddie Gossage mad at you, and that's never a good thing, I don't see how it's a problem. I, I don't see why it's not better to focus on the stuff that is working instead of continuing to try to wedge a square peg into a round hole. Well, I will say that uh, with Eddie, you know, he's never been short of, of criticism if, if he's felt it warranted. And uh, every time he was in front of a mic there on TV interviews uh, with us, anywhere else, he was nothing but positive about the Indy car, so I don't know if he's privy to some other information that we don't. Uh, you know, you know, obviously he is, but uh, uh, what that information is, I don't know. Uh, but he seemed uh, very upbeat, uh, more so than he has been the last couple of years. So take that for what you will. Okay, well that's worth something. And I don't know that the formula can work at Texas because the 2012 race was really, really good. And I don't know what changed between 12 and 13 
that made the 13 race so bad after the 12 race had been so good. I mean, I think there were people universally thought that 2012 was one of the best oval races IndyCars had since the unification. I remember how excited people were. And then I don't know if IndyCar thought they needed to tweak the formula somehow. I don't know if, if Firestone came back with a different tire that just didn't work. But it's like IndyCar tried to go back toward where they were in, in 2012 and they keep saying they're trying to get rid of the pack racing i don't remember pack racing never being a problem in 2012 it yeah. was a very very raceable I've got, I've got formula on this go yeah, ahead please go John. Ahead. yeah in, in in my opinion the 2012 race and and hear me out let me finish on this was not appreciably different than the 2013 race or the 2014 race and at the end of the 2012 race you had a 20 to 30 lakh stint of Justin Wilson shrinking a gap to Graham Rahal. And if Graham Rahal doesn't make a bobble and catch the wall, he wins that race by about five seconds. I think we were part of the, hey, this is the first race since the Dan Weldon incident. And if nobody gets hurt and there's anything halfway exciting, everybody was looking to, to be happy and praise IndyCar and say, wow, what a great thing. And, I honestly, to to my eye, didn't see that much difference in the true racing when we showed back up in 13 or 14 as far as gaps and and how cars were running each other. And but I think the the expectations had already started to change. Uh, the the wounds had healed a little bit, so to speak, on some of the other stuff. There wasn't as much pressure to feel like that anything that that as long as it was safe that it was going to be a great race. So to me, I haven't seen that much difference, and I think that's why I've liked 2013 and 2014 where some others haven't. I loved the 2012 race. I thought that was great, but that type of racing appeals to me. Um, but I just I don't think it was has been that much different. I think some of our expectations have changed. It's an interesting viewpoint. Didn't both the 2012 and 2013 winner also get dinged with penalties afterward? <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly. I know 12 did. I don't remember. What was 13? Didn't Elio get pit penalized after winning last year? Because I, I know it was a bit of a running yes. joke for a while. Oh, my gosh, you have to cheat to win at Texas. <laughs> 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 I haven't heard anything so far about Ed, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, and that sort of not, – not to say that that plays into it, too, but I, I do recall Justin's – penalty being something fairly significant as well but anyway um no it's an interesting viewpoint john and uh, and definitely something worth weighing into into thinking about how we think back on that 2012 race too well we've kind of already hit our time <laughs> so if we want to go over some of these um some of these talking points we're going to have to do it pretty briefly let's just do sort of a little bit of a rapid fire on some of these these few points that stood out for, for the uh for the race i came into or I came out of, I should say, this broadcast, assuming that the ratings were going to be dismal. The, the race wasn't all that exciting. Um, it, it finished pretty late on the East Coast, and they, there was a Stanley Cup final going on on the West Coast that, that drew a lot of people away, a lot of attention away. So I was pretty surprised to see it get a .4 overnight, um, which is not too bad in the NBC Sports Network world of things um so maybe it wasn't quite as dire as we've made it all out to be here um but i would i wish to submit that um part of that might be the appeal of having paul tracy in the booth he was awesome 
And just that that ability has to consistently rub people the wrong way and say what's on his mind no matter what I think works extremely well. And I don't really understand what's taken them this long to get him in there. Um, But that's just my my two cents. John, I don't know if you really saw much of it having been on site, but Paul, did you have uh, any thoughts? I thought he was very good. I I know you had made mention of uh, of his ability throughout the race to as the race went on, the correct pronunciation of Elio's name got further and further <laughs> from Paul Tracy's vocabulary. Uh, it it kind of degraded through the race, but I thought he and Elio, uh, he, he definitely had, had a good perspective. Um, I think he and Townsend worked well. I think Townsend maybe provides a little bit more uh, recent experience having been in the car and being a little bit more familiar with the DW 12. Uh, I don't know that, have either of them raced at Texas? I'm sure Townsend has. Not in this formula, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But, um, no, I thought they worked very well together. I thought Brian Till was was very good as well in a stand-in role for Lee Diffie. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, I just, I just think the, the NBC crew is is an excellent crew from top to bottom. And, and these pieces that they kind of take in and plug in, whether it's Steve Matchett or David Hobbs or Brian Till or Paul Tracy, somehow they all seem to gel and work well together, no matter who's there. And I think they all, once again, put on a great presentation. So um, Ed Carpenter racing and Ed Carpenter um, getting that win. He, they now have one win from each driver this season. It's, are, are we counting them in amongst maybe just sort of the tier just below the, the super teams now, would you say? I think you've got to. Yeah. Uh, you know, the proof's in the pudding, so to say. I mean, the, the results are there. They're a, they're a threat to win. Um, Ed is one of the favorites on on any oval that he shows up to right now with good reason. And uh, I think uh, Mike Conway, at least on the street circuits, is, uh, is almost a prohibitive uh, one of the – you know, handful that you throw out there immediately as, as a threat to win and uh, pretty much the same on the uh, natural terrain road courses. So, uh, you know, if you can show up every week and you're one of the favorite cars, I think that's got to put you in that pantheon. Interesting to see that uh, both Ed and Mike are tied in our um, unofficial bonus winnings tally table right now for um, bringing the same amount of bonus money home for the team. So um, it's really nice to see that decision pay off and and the the work being done equally and the success being found equally on both sides of the team with the new layout. Um, You touched on this with Townsend Bell in your interview, Paul, but um, Will Power costs himself, shoots himself in the foot again, has another issue in the pits again, this time his fault. Um, isn't this something like the fourth pit speed violation in three races for Penske Racing? Do you get the feeling there's something going on there? Yeah, well, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a team-wide epidemic as much as it is just a driver uh, did, I, I'm trying to think, did Juan Pablo have one besides Indianapolis? I can't think of one. I'm sure that there was a... But this was is it Powers. at Detroit? Hold on, I'm trying to think of this because I know I, I was sitting in a press conference at some point, I think it was at Detroit, um, where all three of them had had, had an issue. And I said to Elio, it, I, I think it was at Detroit, and I said to him, is this... No, it was... Uh, at Indy, it was at Indy because both Will and 
Juan had been penalized and I asked him in the post-race presser, did you get the message that there might be a team-wide issue about that? And he said, yes, I did. Huh. Yeah. And so um, it seems like that might be something that's continuing. I don't know who sets that up. I don't know if it comes from Chevy or from who does the electronics, Cosworth? Possibly, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it, but the, you look at the power, the the penalties that Will Powers had. I mean, he hasn't been close. It wasn't like he was was rolling at a pit speed and he was yeah. just eight miles an hour off because of the electronics. I mean, he's still locking up the brakes and skidding past the 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 the, the go the the speed limit cone. There's no, you can't blame the electronics for that. No, that's true. I mean, that's just and that happens. Yeah, I think he's just. I think he's just pushing it too hard, trying to get that last little bit. He kind of uh, uh, intoned that at, at the press conference afterwards. You know, even when you hit that pit pit uh, speed limiter, it, you've still it's still got to be able to engine break the car down from whatever speed you're going. And I think he's just trying to to get that last little tenth of a second, and has been overshooting it. He made a comment uh, at his uh, press conference, uh, podium press conference after the race, that uh, he was going to. He was pretty hard on himself about it and saying that that, that was going to have to change. So uh, uh, be interesting to see his approach in the coming weeks because he he seemed pretty uh, pretty irritated with himself. Well, he's been saying so much lately about how he's not paying attention to the points these days. He might be taking it a little bit too far in the other direction. Let's say <laughs> um, certainly for the captain's liking because. Uh, I don't know. I, I I guess you look at Elio as being at, at at least an equally strong contender for the title, um, but certainly he wants to have two bullets in his gun, so to say. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if you saw it on the international feed, Steph, or not. And John, I doubt you saw it. But after Will got penalized the other night, there was a a picture or a, a camera zoomed in on Tim Sendrick <laughs> right afterwards. And I mean, it looked like he could have eaten nails. I mean, it was just a steely eyed. You could just tell he was ready to breathe fire, and he just had had enough of this, of Will shooting himself in the foot race after race after race. That's four penalties in the last five races. And, you know, a championship winner just can't do that. Not when the things are this tight to give away points like that week in and week out. Yeah, he finished second, but, I mean, he still lost ten points. So do we have the fifth year in a row on our hands where Will loses it just at the very end again? We'll see. It's always intriguing. Speaking of intriguing, Honda, oh my goodness. What was it? Two engines that they lost. Oh, and I wanted to address this, by the way, because Marco being so quick on those opening laps and then his engine blowing, that's classic engine about to go, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that that's a shame because it was, it was certainly fun to watch, but not something that you'd commonly see for more than a few laps. But um, yeah, they lost what was, they lost, Andretti, they lost Sato. Was were they the only two? Uh, Andretti, uh, Sato. They lost Hunter Ray. Right. And then, I Hunter mean, Ray, yeah. clearly they were having some performance issues as well because if you look at that box score, there were only two Hondas in amongst that that first pack of Chevrolets, and that were, those were the two uh, Schmidt Peterson entries in, that managed to work their way sort of into the the top ten ish, and the whole rest of it was Chevrolets. So um, I believe that some a, rep, a Honda representative told Autosport this week that they think that that's only a one off issue, but certainly um, that's got to be related to the changes that they made this year, doesn't it? 
Well, it's just hard to say. I mean, the, I, that's beyond my realm of mechanical knowledge for sure. But, you know, they, they seem to be on par at Indianapolis, and they had fairly good reliability there. Um, you know, and, and that was a race where, as, as we said, we, uh, you know, they ran 150 laps nonstop. I mean, that's 375 miles full throttle for the most of the time without any engine issues. So I don't know if it's something related specifically to the track geometry at, at Texas. You know, it's a very different uh, physical loading sort of track where where you have more G-loads, G-loading on, on the engine. If that had some sort of effect on the reliability, I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the real difference. But certainly you wouldn't have expected that much loading to blow up Marco's engine in three or four miles. Oh, that's true. Well, although, I mean, I guess that they had been running all weekend, but um, yeah, it's certainly a bit of a conundrum and it will be interesting to see if Texas is the only track where they have this issue. Cause yeah, I mean, it hasn't been a season long problem. It's not like they're blowing two, three engines at every event. No, but this is the first high bank event that mm-hmm. we've been to. And the only Wait. one. I'm sorry. And the only one. Well, no, not necessarily because well, I mean, Fontana's not exactly flat. I mean, we're not talking Milwaukee, Indianapolis flat there. I think it's still, oh, I'd have to go back. I think maybe 18 degrees. I mean, it's not insignificant, and, and you're carrying a lot of speed there as well. You know, there's a lot of points. track where you want to be worried about whether your engines are going to make it. Well, yeah, I mean, at certainly the you don't. Right. You don't want to go. There's a lot of points on the line. Remember, that's a double event, double points event as well. You that's go right. in 100 points for a win. I mean, you have to assume that championship is still going to be alive coming to California. And if you're a Honda driver, if you're Ryan Hunter Ray, if you're, you know, who else is in the top of the standings there? You got Ryan Hunter Ray, who's quickly following. Simon Pagano's right up there. Uh, Marco Andretti. I mean, all of those are in your top five. You mm-hmm. go into that last race. You've got enough to worry about whether or not your engine's going to survive 500 miles. You know, it, it's hard to say. Maybe yeah. we'll know more after Pocono uh, and and see how they how they last there. But definitely think, will be interesting. Yeah, one to keep in our back pockets to to discuss right before the Fontana race for sure. Um, speaking of things that we're going to put in our back pockets, I think we're going to put a whole bunch of things in our back pockets to talk about another day because we're, we're really pushing our time limits here. But, um, some of the things we can sort of put on the table as things that we still need to talk about is our, um, Townsend Bell, uh, discussion that you had with him about whether these cars just need more power. Um, the additional schedule announcements with the, the tentative, uh, Races being the races being considered, I should say, for Dubai and uh, and Brasilia and Brazil, and uh, we still have to talk about all of Detroit. So we've got lots to talk about when we come back next week for that in between week. That's that's sometimes a little awkward. We'll have plenty to cover as we uh, prepare for the lead into Houston, and of course we'll have John Lingle on site to cover the Houston event for uh, more front wing as well. So we're very much looking forward to keeping in the the thick of things and keeping you all in the loop as our coverage continues as we continue through the season. So I think at this point, we'll call it a night and uh, say thank you, Paul, for for being here. Thank you to John. Thank you for to Townsend Bell for uh, spending some time with us today. And um, t- everybody's time is greatly appreciated, especially yours at home, as you so graciously let us into your earbuds every week and uh, let us prattle on about IndyCar as we do. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more Front Wing. <laughs>